have to learn your cliches. You're gonna have to study them. You're gonna have to know them. Well, you know, you go out there and you give 110% and you want to play good and, you know, you hope you play good. I think we play pretty good tonight. Well, you know, there's no I in the word team, and this is a team effort. Ten, five, touchdown. Oh, man, you know, you just got to play one game at a time and go out there and give 110%. All right! Play ball. Hi, everybody, and thanks for choosing to spend some minutes with Scoring at the Movies, episode number 65, or Senior Citizens. We gaze at sports flicks, usually from even longer ago than today's 20-year-old title. I know, we do the spoiling thing. I'm the guy who's been in a union for 22 years, but who also isn't a has-been, I'm a never-was, Ryan Ellis. And here's the barnacle scrubber and the left-handed quarterback who will be drinking beer in his boat, kicking back. Chris DiGregorio, or should I say Keanu DiGregorio. Thanks, Ryan. We both know that I've got plenty of barnacles. I just wish I had the boat. That would have been a lot easier to explain to people in that case. You know, I tried to go into the grocery store the other day and, you know, ask for the senior citizens discount, but they kept telling me, no, no, you got to air episode 65 first. None of this 64 episode nonsense before we'll give you your 15% off. Whatever I was trying to buy, adult diapers or what have you. This is a relief for me. My budget could really use it, you know what I mean? Although, for such a momentous occasion, I can't help but wonder whether maybe we should have chosen a little bit of a higher tier of movie, which isn't to necessarily give away the final thoughts that I might have on this movie, but... (laughs) The opening final thoughts. The opening final thoughts. This is going to be a super short 65th episode. 90 (laughs) seconds and out. What did you think about this one in broad strokes? I got it from the library, and I loaned it to you. I watched it, I think, four days ago. I don't know when you saw it. I'm guessing the last day or two. And I have to admit that I needed Wikipedia to remind me of the plot. I knew the basic structure, but I forgot some of the details. That's not to say I hated it. That's to say that it was very forgettable. And that probably explains why it was a break-evener at the box office that year, which does not make it a hit. It basically made its budget back. So I didn't hate it by any means. I thought Keanu was very likable. And we know Keanu's likable. Yeah. But at this point, he had done so much drag... And then he was not so likable in Hardball, which I've mentioned many times, and we will cover it eventually. That was the year after this. He's not that likable in that film. and this sports film, he is. And Hackman is always good. He's just fine in this at best. But I really struggled to remember what the hell it was about a day or two after I watched it. What about you? Yeah, I don't blame you. And when you're talking about forgetting the plot, there isn't really much plot to forget. So it's pretty easy to say, well, i got to double-check what this movie's all about. Because once you get past the professional footballers go on strike, football coach finds goofy, lovable representative group of replacement players to fill the gaps, and replacement players come out triumphant at the end, there's basically nothing else except those three plot beats, nothing to fill in those gaps. It's a 90-minute movie in a two-hour package. I'm glad you said that, because I felt exactly the same way. There's so much stuff in this movie that is so pointless and needless. I think if you were to trim about half an hour of stuff, it might be a really fun, goofy romp. It's a surprisingly good cast for a Mm 2000-era, low-ish budget movie, right? Keanu and Gene Hackman, obviously. I'm a big Orlando Jones fan, for the most part, anyway, and he doesn't have a lot to do in this, but he's kind of fun. Does his best. Yeah, he does his best. Young Jon Favreau following up his appearance in Rudy, where he was Mm -hmm. a little weird, and very weird in this. The Welsh guy that's in it, Reese something or other. Reese Ephons. Ephons, thank you. I always forget that. 
I always remember him most recently, I think, from one of the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man movies. He played Doc Connors. But he's a heck of a lot of fun as the Welsh kicker. My single favorite line in this movie might be when Dennis... Not Dennis Hopper. Good Lord. Look at me. Already screwing up names. Gene when Hackman? Gene Hackman. How did I get those two mixed up? Because of Hoosiers. <laughs> because Gene Hackman is playing the coach from Hoosiers in this movie. I understand why you made that mistake, because Dennis Hopper's also in Hoosiers. That's probably not why I did that, but I'll take the excuse. I'll go with it. This is the same character he's playing. I love Gene Hackman. He didn't even try in this role. He's that good. He yeah. can just show up and coast, and he's still solid. But he didn't do anything original or unusual in this movie. It's, in a lot of ways, the Hoosiers coach all over again. Oh, you're not wrong about that. Pretty much down to exactly the same mannerisms and coaching style. They were naming off all the goofball recruits that they wanted to bring in as replacement players. And he tells them about this Welsh kicker. And he says, well, is this guy keeping in shape? And Hackman says, yeah, for the Welsh, he's in shape. Yeah, my in-laws are Welsh. Anytime a movie just sticks in a little dig at the Welsh, I get a chuckle out of that. So I appreciated that. In honor of the Welsh, you should open your beverage. We're well into this podcast, and you haven't had anything to drink that I can see. So Not yet. what are you drinking? And by the way, you're wearing a Clear Lake Brewery shirt, and that was the beer of choice. Or at least that was the brewery of choice, I think, last week, two weeks ago. Yeah, I think I've had it on one of these podcasts. This one is uh, from Railway City. Yet another fruited sour beer, Ryan. I think this one's raspberry or something. You know me. I like my fruited beers. The audience can guess that I am drinking. All of you all over the world, say it with me. See, see, and diet. Did you say it with me? You probably should have. <laughs> this is where I feel a little awkward, because the one thing that this movie really did that put me, or made me a little uncomfortable, was the repeated references to, that's why girls don't play this game or something. Mm. This is definitely a beer that is gender neutral. Anyone can enjoy this. I can say that full confidence but when Keanu says I had three concussions to prove it when they're talking about him getting just slaughtered in the sugar bowl Gene Hackman's response is that's why girls don't play this game right what is wrong with you okay I thought that was a one-off comment at first but they bring it back I think two other times and notably at the climactic game when they're in the huddle and Keanu's like give me the ball or something and you're gonna get slaughtered that's why girls don't play this game I'm like oh come on man Mm. I know it's a year 2000 movie but I found it cringeworthy a little bit. I'm guaranteeing you without knowing for sure, because how could I know, that that's still been said, probably until yesterday, especially in football locker rooms, probably in tennis locker rooms, or ping pong, or golf. (laughs) Yeah, well, ping pong is a man's game, Ryan. I think we can all agree on that. Come on. The ferocity of ping pong. (laughs) But no, that's been a cliche forever. Are you a girl, or are you even worse, a other F word? So it makes sense that this movie 20 years ago would be saying that. And Gene Hackman, at this point, was 60 years old. He didn't write the screenplay. He's reading no. what they told him to say. But he's not exactly young. I've never met Gene Hackman. I just said he's a great actor, and he certainly was. We'll say was because he's retired. We'll probably never see him act again. He's still alive. Same age as Connery, who recently died, but he's still going. Oh, is he? But I'm guessing that Hackman's not the most woke fellow of all time because he's 90 years old now, and he was 60 when... Wait, is that right? 70? He was 70, right. He was born in 1930. Again, we see my math is not the greatest when it comes to doing podcasts. He was 70 when the movie came out. There you go, past retirement age. Well, let me do the nutshell, actually, because the thing that bothered me even more so than the that's why girls don't play this game, and that's bad. Well, let me do the nutshell first, then we'll get into the reason why. Two words. Fucking scabs. (laughs) Okay, I'm a union guy. You're a union guy. We've been in unions for a long time. I've been in one for 22 years. But 
I actually don't blame the players in this movie, or maybe scabs in general, as much as I blame the owners, or bosses, say at my company, for example, which I think use scabs and some of our work stoppages in the past. Really? I don't blame people for going in as much as the people who are in charge for recruiting them. Because strikes are not usually just about money. Of course, money is always a factor. Although sometimes it's way down the list of the reasons why. I think that's been the case of the strikes and lockouts I've been involved in. Okay, but let's stick with football here. Let's stick with this movie. This is not the NFL, apparently. It's just a pro league. That's why it's the Washington Sentinels and not Washington Redacteds, if you will. The Scabskins. Pros just want to play the game they've loved for years. Scabs are put in a tough spot. They want to work. They want to earn some money just like the pros do. Plus, they get to live a dream they were obviously otherwise never going to live. It isn't cool that they did it, but I don't really blame them. They're the Frankenstein monster. They didn't ask to be put in this position. It's the doctor in Frankenstein, Victor Frankenstein's fault, that the monster's roaming loose. I don't blame the players for going for their fair share of what's a very large pie when you talk about professional sports. This league, you're right, is not the NFL, but it's sort of like Sunday Night Lights. It's kind of like the analog for the NFL because this is a very similar thing to 1987 or something work stoppage that the NFL experienced. So I had no antipathy towards the players. I had no antipathy towards the scabs, using air quote scabs to differentiate the replacements or whatever from the regular players. But you're right, it's owners. scabs. Yeah, scabs. (laughs) But you mentioned earlier, this is a two-hour movie, but it's really like 90 minutes worth of material. And one of the things that I think could have very easily been cut out and you lose nothing from the plot is... Every little scene here and there where the players were just ragging on Falco, flipping his car because he's a scab, scab, it means nothing. By the end of the movie, the players have come back. Nobody's seeking any kind of revenge against the scabs at any point, save and except for the two instances of them flipping Falco's car. So that's like 10 minutes you could get right there. But one of the things that became super obvious super early in this movie because i think it's maybe the second or third scene as soon as the first sequence of mattel what's his name martel the regular quarterback for washington he goes down he loses a game and when i say go down i mean he just slides in and goes down rather than try to run through a tackle they lose the game and then we hear there's a strike what we're immediately shown are clips of a angry members of the public saying oh why should players get $8 million instead of seven? They're all overpaid, rich, such and such is. And then you get a clip of the players saying, hey, come on, guys, don't you know how much insurance on a Ferrari costs? I think shortly thereafter, you hear either the owner or the GM say, all the players have taken off to their castles in private jets. There are tons of professional athletes in 2020, at least, and certainly, I guess, in 2000 as well, that were making a lot of money. But these guys get the bejesus beaten out of their bodies I think the median career length is something like four years in the NFL. If somebody is willing to spend even four years just getting their body destroyed in exchange for like $20 million over that time, go for it, man. You are welcome to it. Why would I be angry at you about that? Congratulations. As a sports fan, I'm upset when sports are striking because I know there's so much money in the pool generally that there should be a reasonable agreement that the two sides can make, and I just want to see my sports. But I'm not going to get pissed off at the players most of the time because either they're getting the money or the billionaire owners are getting the money. And I'd rather, frankly, the guys that are putting their bodies on the line get the money than the owners at the end of the day. Why all this antipathy? Clearly the movie is trying to say, look at these greedy players. I don't know if they just wanted us to hate the players off the bat. We've talked about this in another podcast, sometimes apropos of nothing. And here's a podcast that's actually about labor, the unions, players getting their fair share. 
or maybe more than their fair share, the owners make so much in every sport. And this wasn't so true 20 years ago in the NFL. I know this isn't the actual NFL, but let's say it is. But now they make so much. And the reason we watch is not because Jerry Jones is taking snaps. Right. It's not because Robert Kraft is running down the quarterback <laughs> and sacking him. It's because the people they pay to do that are doing that. They're the product. So they should get paid accordingly. If you're bringing in billions of dollars, as the NFL is, then pay these people what they're worth. And it's not just about simple money anyway. It's a lot of the time about the future. It's a lot of the time about some kid who's 10 years old. You're supposed to be looking out for him too, as you and I are in our unions. If we just completely kowtow to something in a labor dispute now, because, oh, that'll benefit me in my retirement. Unions aren't supposed to think that way. And I get that a lot of people don't like unions. I haven't always. But there's a reason why they existed. It's too bad they're going away. And this movie, though, seems to hate unions. And it seems to present pro players. It always chuffs me when any movie, and of course we've done plenty of sports movies, don't respect some of these angles we've talked about lots of times. We haven't really dealt with steroids specifically in our movies that often, but they come up a lot mm -hmm. in 65 episodes. This is the other issue, along with gambling and potential cheating and throwing games and that kind of thing. All these things come back to people want to watch the players play. No one really cares in the end about a movie producer or a sports owner or the person running the CBC for me or your big boss, what they do. Then again, you and I aren't even the product either because I'm not the on-air person and you're not the person that's front row center in your job or what you're helping facilitate is your job. That's what people want to see. That's the product. So if you're not going to support that as the person that owns it, that runs it, okay, here's a bigger issue. Forget all of that, actually. These people that run these things don't care about you. They don't care. George Carlin, they don't care at all, at all, at all. That applies to the government a lot of the time, far too often. That applies to sports owners far too often. That applies to bosses in any job far too often. So if you're going to side with them, I'll never understand that. I feel like I've made this point in another podcast. I'm doing it again. Although we're talking about a strike movie, so I guess it has to come up here. And this movie seems to resent the pros right. for just wanting to be paid accordingly and treated. Maybe better than paid is treated accordingly. Maybe the screenwriter, director, whomever has a thing for professional athletes and thinks that they're spoiled or what have you. I don't know. But my suspicion is that it was a ham-handed effort to try to get us to resent these regular players early on so that later on, towards the end of the movie, when some of those regulars start crossing the lines, the picket lines, and playing again, we root all the more for the replacements. But to me, the fact that the players want their just due doesn't affect how much I would like some of these amateur players to succeed in what they're trying to do. If you're going to feel anything for the replacements in the movie, it's because you yourself, at some point, whether it was when you were 10 years old or 40 years old, had a fantasy about playing a professional sport game of some kind in front of tens of thousands of people, for whatever the stakes might be, just to be in that environment once must be an insane experience. So just seeing these guys able to play four games, win, lose, or draw, and live out their dream, and like they said at the end of the movie, in a kind of weird juxtaposition to the tone of the rest of the movie with Gene Hackman's voiceover. I get the message. Okay, these guys got a second chance, a lot of them, and it's great. They enjoyed it. But this is a goofy comedy, by and large. And then at the end of it, you get this really somber, heavy and gravitas voiceover that talks about how these men might not have known it then, but they've come away from this forever changed. And I'm like, 
what the hell movie did I just watch? Is this Morgan mm-hmm. Freeman reciting the end of Shawshank now? What is this? I don't get it. <laughs> I hope the NFL is as blue as it has been in my dream. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> it's a weird movie, man. And it's so often disconnected. The decisions that were made in this movie, it feels like one scene and then another scene and then another scene. But those scenes aren't necessarily logically connected together. So every time I was watching one, I was thinking about, hold on, that's weird. Oh, that's a lot of fun. But oh, what are you doing now? We can talk about the broad themes like we've done with unions and all of that. Incidentally, I don't think I directly answered that. I respect the fact that the owners put up a lot of money to run these teams and that they should have an expectation of profiting off it. So I don't begrudge them that either. But I agree with you. The players are the bread and butter of the leagues. They deserve their just due. And whatever my complicated feelings might be about the way unions in general might behave from time to time, they serve a valuable purpose a lot too. So I'm right with you there. But once you get past those broad themes of this movie, how do you break it down? It's a virtually nothing plot, just a sequence of scenes. I can tell you one thing I did like, just being a movie from the year 2000. The soundtrack gave me such nostalgic vibes right off the get-go. The first scene with Keanu diving into Scrape Barnacles where he finds his trophy that I guess he forgot he must have thrown in there at some point in the past. (laughs) They were playing Ziploc Bag by Lit, and I was thinking, oh my god, man. It's transporting me back to the summer of 99 when I was 18 (laughs) years old. Keanu threw his first football. (laughs) Back in the summer of 99, <laughs> this movie was shot in Baltimore and Richmond in the summer of 99. That actually is true. It was shot there. That's right. He was underwater for so long, it was giving me anxiety watching him. I'm like, dude, bring the football up with you. Don't look at it underwater and <laughs> carefully scrape off the lettering in it. Come on. That was actually kind of cute. That was original, too. I don't think I've ever seen a guy do a sports thing that isn't about diving or fishing or what have you underwater before. That was nice, actually. And Keanu is extremely likable and nice in this movie. You talked about the filmmakers, by the way. I'll talk about that now. Howard Deutscht, who directed Pretty in Pink for John Hughes a long time ago, and also Grumpier Old Man, the first sequel. Well, I guess the only sequel to Grumpy Old Man, which I thought was fine. I like the first one more, like most people, but like the second Grumpy Old Man movie. And the writer was Vince McEwen, who only wrote three movies, and this was the last one he ever wrote. His first one was Fly Away Home, the Birds movie with Anna Paquin and Jeff Daniels. Fly Away Home is the best of the three he wrote, I guess. But this is competent. It's just not that funny. I'll give you my score right now. I'd say six. I didn't hate it. One of the best actors of all time in a nothing role really as the coach. Keanu doing a nice job, for the most part, doing his job as the lead. Brooke Langton. I didn't really know her from anything before. She was in Melrose Place and Friday Night Lights on TV. She's sexy, has some snap. I'll also answer the scoring at the movies question. Can you score at this movie? Well, Brooke Langton and Keanu Reeves would have some very attractive children if they ever actually had children because she looks great and, of course, he's Keanu. So that factor's fine. It was a pleasant enough day at the movies, but as I said off the top, I barely remembered it three or four days later. We've done a lot of movies from 2000 this year. I'll give some of the other numbers, too. The box office, it was 57th in 2000. Remember the Titans we covered earlier this year was 14th. That was a pretty big hit. Bring It On, we covered, I believe, last year. The cheerleading movie was 32nd. Love and Basketball earlier this year was 86th. Girl Fight, we covered earlier this year, 183rd. So we've done a lot of sports movies from 2000 in total, and a lot of them this year. And this is not the most successful, but it wasn't a bomb either. The Rotten Tomatoes didn't love it. 41% of critics there, 4.9 out of 10, and 66% of audiences. So 
66 isn't terrible for a score from them. It was known as reserve in Serbia. <laughs> so the word reserve, but with a Z. Reserve. I like reserve. That was 20 years ago by Warner Brothers on August 11th and, of course, 2000. And as I said before, it basically broke even, which is not a success, really. You need to make more than that to be thought of as a success. I wouldn't watch this movie for a third time. I think I saw this on DVD in 2001-ish, probably. I wouldn't recommend this to somebody if I did a review. If I was Siskel and Ebert, I'd talk about the movie for 30 seconds and say, you could do better, you could do worse, you got likable stars, sexy people, some shades of Longest Yard as well. Yep. That one game in the end doesn't really matter. It's more about that little victory inside. You take that with you forever. This means something. Friday Night Lights, the movie. I've never seen the show. Also the same thing. Does it really matter if you win state when you're going to go on to do something else? You would think the next year. You hope the next year, especially for the seniors. Hopefully go on to college or have a job or something. But does it really matter? Although, then again, does even pro sports really matter? Had the Rays won the World Series this year? Does anyone really get all that worked up if the Dodgers didn't? I don't yes! know. Yes! Damn it! Yes! <laughs> you root for the race? I root for the Dodgers. I hate the race. No, no, I'm kidding. I couldn't have cared less who won this year. I think one of the most disappointing elements of this movie for me, as I recall, I might have actually seen this in the theater when it was released because it would have come out when I was 18, 19 years old and it's got Keanu, it's got attractive young women playing cheerleaders, so it would have been right up my alley when I was that age. But one of the most damning elements of it for me now was that I just really didn't care at all mm -hmm. about any of it. There's just no stakes. And maybe that's why they kind of inserted that weird voiceover at the end. Maybe in post they realized, wow, there's just no real climax to this movie. Early on, there's like a one-off line from the owner to Gene Hackman when he brings Hackman in. Basically, you need to win three of the next four games to make the playoffs cool why do we care we know nothing about this washington franchise we don't know what's at stake have they been in a playoff drought are they in danger of losing the franchise and then they win three or four but we also know that the pros are coming back before the final game we know the pros are coming back after this game so for all the players on the field again it's their last hurrah in their position i would imagine just being out there on the field giving it your all has got to be just a spectacularly thrilling thing. And while it would be nice to win if they lose, it just doesn't matter. They're not going to play pro football anymore because they've just been kicked off the team by virtue of the fact that the strike is over. So that win means nothing. All right. I have an analogy if you want to hear it. You go on a date with somebody and it's going okay. You could see the end of the night going where you want it to go. But then you decide to leave and some other guy swoops in and he charms her. And he gets her back to where she was before, thinking, I wouldn't mind going home with this fellow, different fellow. And you're back at your place, or maybe her place. And then it's about to go where you want to go. And right at that moment, the original guy comes back into the picture. He breaks into the apartment. The woman doesn't mind. She says, you know what, Keanu, I don't need you. I'll take Brett Cullen all over again. Eddie Martell, come on in here after all. <laughs> It's a weird thing that we care, or the fans care, under the circumstances. They want to see the sport. They love their football team. It's dumb that people care so much about anything more than they care about their own lives through politics, for example. Football should matter more than their personal lives. But I don't know if my analogy made a ton of sense. I just thought of it right then. But it's almost like, I'll warm her up for you, and then I'll leave. And you take her instead, which is so odd. Because in reality, the scab skins, if you will, in 87 won, I think, three of the games they played because they had replacement games in 87 in the whole NFL, and Washington won the Super Bowl. Their scabs 
went 3-0. and But then their players weren't recognized. They didn't get Super Bowl rings, which I think has been rectified since, but they didn't at the time. And that's what we're seeing here. I like where you're going with that analogy. If you're the Keanu Reeves guy romancing his date, Brett Cullen comes in and tags out, and Keanu leaves feeling great about himself, and the voiceover said, Keanu didn't know that night that though he wouldn't score this particular movie, his life would be forever changed. While someone else scores. (laughs) Yeah. All right. That was unsatisfying. It's funny that you use that exact analogy to try to describe the experience of watching this movie. Because one of the things that was the most mind-boggling element of it to me, contrary to Molly's game last week, where all we talked about was, okay, you've got a very intelligent, charismatic lead in Jessica Chastain and a very charismatic, intelligent counterpart in Idris Alba, and they've got all this chemistry on screen, these intense scenes together, and yet there's no romance there. For once, we wanted something like that, and it didn't happen. Yeah, which is a rarity for me, certainly, I think for us in this podcast. In this movie, as much as I do like Keanu, and I do think that Brooke Langton is a very attractive woman, and I liked her in the role well enough, I didn't think they personally had any chemistry, but the way the relationship is also portrayed on screen was super strange to me. Because early on, it kind of follows your standard movie beats, right? You've got replacement quarterback meets cheerleader. Cheerleader works a second job at a bar that she owns, or at least manages or something. Her dad owned it, I believe. I was a football-obsessed guy. That's how she knows about football, is from her dad who apparently owned this bar. So they have those awkward, can I come see you again after the next game kind of moments, which are cute. But then they finally arrange the date, and this movie does the stupid thing that movies always do, and it makes me so angry every time, because no human being worth any bit of integrity or anything would ever do this. Keanu gets told by Martel, Brett Cullen, oh, she deserves better than you. That one line, you're never was, as you reference off the top of the podcast. You're not even a husband. You're never was. She deserves better than you. So the implication there, I guess, is that Eddie Martell had a relationship with this woman in the past or something. But instead of then going to the date that Keanu had scheduled with Brooke. He's right. Yeah, he just sulks outside and stands her up, right? Rather than go there and say, hey, listen, I don't have a lot going on in my life. Are you sure that this is a relationship you want to go on to? And having a conversation like a normal freaking human being, he just stands her up. And then the next time they see each other is at the following game when she's a cheerleading and he's QBing and he goes up and he kisses her. All right, now everything's okay. Go, Falco. I'm like, no, man, that's not how human beings work. It's such a cheap, lazy romance subplot. Here I am back on the anti-romance subplot train again. (laughs) You've criticized the romances in our sports movies lots of times. More than I have, I think. Not that I've loved all of them either, especially when they're tacked on. But let me ask this question. What is your top of your head favorite example of a romance in a movie does not have to be a sports movie just any movie so we know where your frame of reference is is why i'm asking put me on the spot ryan groundhog day Groundhog Day. <laughs> i know you're not a rom-com guy but if you said a rom-com well that's the point of that movie but a movie that isn't about the romance exactly because sports movies almost never are either one of the best relationships we've ever seen in a sports movie is field of dreams the marriage they've been married for i don't know five or six years maybe eight years ten years They have a great marriage and a great romance, but it's not a romantic kind of film. They're already together. But I think that's one of the better relationships we've seen in any of the movies we've covered in 65 films now. So what's your frame of reference for what you like as a romance is why I'm asking you this. It's not like I'm expecting an in-depth examination of their relationship because it is very much a subplot, right? So you only have a few quick beats to try to establish this within the context of this movie or any other movie that's not basically, like you said, a rom-com. But for me, something like Star Wars is a great example. Han Solo and Princess Leia, 
They have so little screen time together that there's really no explanation for the development of their romance except that they have these They're few... attractive. Yeah, they're attractive and they spit witticisms at each other. But the way they behave as their relationship progresses within the context of the Star Wars trilogy, it makes sense Han Solo is a quippy kind of ass and Princess Leia is unimpressed with him and just trying to brush him off but ultimately falls for his roguish charm. That at least makes a certain amount of sense. But to me, if I stand up a date, and this isn't even deep into a relationship, this is the first Mm. date, and then I plant her one in public and everything is well in the world, that's not how human beings work. I'm sorry. He's hot. She's hot. That's all it is. I would have been 100% okay with that, too. If it turned out that she just had a thing for Keanu and just wanted to bone him, do that, too. But don't don't have this half-ass romance thrown into it. One of the weird choices this movie made was to decide that if the players go on strike, the cheerleaders go on strike too. I guess just for the Mm. comedy of recruiting a new cheerleading squad. Which was amusing. I enjoyed that sequence more than I thought I would. I very much enjoyed the one particular woman that was like, these oranges, and she's shaking her breasts. That was not particularly politically correct, I suppose, in 2020. Well, they're all strippers, aren't they? That's why they're doing these kinds of things. Yeah, they're strippers, exactly. But you're right, it was a fun scene. And later on, you get one of those women who comes on to the deaf tight end, mimicking she wants to give him a blowjob in the back of the club, and the guy's happy about it, and she's super happy about it. I'm like, oh, cool. She's a liberated, progressive woman, and he's a young guy who's horny. Go for it, guys. You've got Nigel Gruff, the place kicker's 65-yard field goal, which at the time was record-setting. Yeah. I think it's been broken since, but it was a 65-yard field goal with a cigarette in his mouth and in his finger until the last second. But that one's the second game of the four they have to win. They lost the first because Shane red blitz, and I wouldn't say panicked, but that's how Jimmy McGinty, Hackman's character, reads it. I want guys who want the ball. Well, he wanted the ball. He just red blitz and thought it was the wrong call. That's mm-hmm. what you trust quarterbacks to do. You could say it was a mistake, but I don't think he pussied out. But that's what he was accused of doing when he was a quarterback at Ohio State. So he was a former quarterback at Ohio State in Point Break, and I believe it's the same school in this movie that he was, ironically. Probably deliberate, actually, not ironically, nine years later. And we covered Point Break earlier this year, by the way. They win game two. I love the touchdown dance, the systematic killing. You don't see touchdown dances anymore. It's a shame because we've talked in other football movies that that's fun when they do that in reality, but it's fun to see it in this film. And then game three of the four, of course, is the big one that they do win. But Martell is the quarterback who doesn't care, with these guys at least, maybe he'll care when the playoffs hit the week after this. They're down 17-0 with him at the half, but then Shane arrives from out of nowhere! He was on his boat watching the game, but gets there in time to take over. And they happen to win the game. But it's a nice touch. I'll give the movie credit for this. That because Gruff is worried about his quote-unquote buddies doing something bad to him, I guess taking away his bar back home if he makes the kick and wins the game, Shane pulls it away. I think he hears that somehow. I've already forgotten. See, I told you. I don't remember the details of this exactly. And then Shane runs it in. And a lot of movies, that would be it. They won the game. So the kicker doesn't have to worry about what happened with his buddies. And Shane's the hero, but then, oh, penalty. And it's Faison Love, who's fun in this movie. Who's the screw up? I think it's him, or maybe it's the other guy. What's his name here? Ace Yonamine, I guess. Famiko, who plays the yeah. Asian guy. One of the two of them is offside or something or holding. So then it's got to be that Shane wants the ball. And then here's a nice touch because Jimmy calls a spread formation. The coach calls that. That reminds me of Hoosiers. We said already Hackman and Hoosiers, same kind of character. It reminds me of this scene at the end when Jimmy, the character in Hoosiers, now it's Jimmy's the coach, but. 
Jimmy, the player in Hoosiers, gets the ball. The rest of you spread the floor, i.e. get the hell out of the way. <laughs> so now it's a spread formation in this movie. And then, of course, Shane wins it by throwing it to the deaf tight end who gets to be the hero. Then the scabs are done. We get the voiceover. The movie's over. This is part of the reason why the whole scab versus pro players animosity early in the movie makes no sense because by the end of it all, Martell crosses the line anyway. One of the cute little lines I thought in this thing was Orlando Jones's character at the line of scrimmage against Dallas, and all of Dallas's players at this point are meant to be pros, right? So he's lined up against a defensive player that he admires. He goes, oh, I'm a big fan. Can I get an autograph after the game? Yeah, no problem. And then just pile drives Orlando Jones once the play begins, which I thought was kind of cute. One of the questions that came to mind for me was this Welsh kicker character. How much money does he owe these guys that they are willing to fly to America and come to the game just to give him the stink eye while he's playing? I think I know. Yeah? It's $48. <laughs> Do you have change for 50 To a change, we thank you. <laughs> One of the great conclusions to any Simpsons episode ever is that Krusty owes 48 bucks, or I think it's 48 anyway, to the mob. Pays it. That's it. You're done. That's all it is that Nigel owes. Yeah. But he breaks his arm, too, the dumbass. He's got to pay for that now. I don't know if Ireland or Wales, wherever he's from, he said Wales, right? He's has Wales. any health care. I hope they do, because America doesn't. Oh, wait, NFL or the Pro League would probably cover that in their health package. What do you think the scabs got paid for this? Probably as little as possible. Oh, yeah. Probably absolute bare minimum. You talked about the cheerleaders going on strike with them. Real cheerleaders in the real NFL get paid dirt, I think, even now. That certainly was true before. So there's no way that 20 years ago, cheerleaders in this fake NFL league were paid anything more than a pittance, yet they want to strike with the players. So if you're going to get scabs, you're not going to pay them anything more than you absolutely have to. These guys would probably do it for food money just to get to play. Yep. You talked about Shane Falco, Keanu Reeves, in this movie. He's a hot shot at Ohio State. We see him underwater with that All-American trophy, so presumably he's a very good quarterback at the NCAA level. Apparently he lost one game in the Sugar Bowl, just got annihilated in that game, granted, but lost one game and then just fell off the face of the football earth, which strikes me as probably unlikely. I don't care how many concussions you've got. You're going to try to get at least drafted for that payday. You're not going to just walk away before at least getting picked by an NFL team. Somebody give him a chance. Even as a backup. Even if you're on the freaking practice squad, you're a third or fourth string quarterback, you're making six figures, right? It's worth doing for at least a few years just to get a little bit of money in your pocket before you do other things. Even if they paid him 20000 a year and he still did the chum scrubbing job, he could get by oh, yeah. okay. If he got paid next to nothing and that was his day job and then he still had to do on weekends, I guess, the boat stuff, that wouldn't be such a terrible life. He'd get paid something to do his dream. We talked in Field of Dreams earlier, but talk about it again now. The line that Costner has with Burt Lancaster. Guys want to live their dreams. They would kill them if they got that close and didn't touch it. Well, Shane got to play in college in a bowl game. And now that he's played in the pro league for four weeks and done pretty well, won three to four games, he's absolutely touched his dream. So if somebody said to him, as a pro, backup quarterback, practice squad quarterback, what have you, Never get to see action, but to make a decent living. It's the Ruby thing. You're there. You're yeah. not living the actual dream, but isn't it pretty close? It's certainly better than what Moonlight Graham gets to do. Well, then again, Moonlight Graham played in a professional game. He just didn't get to bat. You and I would take anything close to any of this in a second, as would most people. Give me one pinch hit opportunity in the major leagues. I'll do it for free. I don't care if you strike me out on three pitches. Just to be in that <laughs> position in front of a stadium of people would be just mind-bogglingly insane, I think. 
I'd be the third base coach in a game. That'd be fun. <laughs> the first base coach. The guy who takes the batting armor off and the guy comes after he's walked or something. You'd be the guy yelling at me after I ran through your side. Yes, I would. And got thrown out. This is true. Okay, your other favorite highlights in the film. We've talked about Gene Hackman in this movie, and like you said, he just recycles his Hoosiers performance with a little less energy in this, and he's fine. He's just such a good actor, he can pull it off. But within the context of the movie, he doesn't start out as the team's coach, right? He's brought in when they strike. He's a scab too. Well, not really, because the implication is the players will come back and he's staying on. He's just the new coach at that point. He's not truly a scab, but he wasn't the coach. He's scab adjacent. He's scab adjacent, (laughs) yeah. He was an NFL coach in the 80s, and for some unexplained reason was fired in disgrace, even though he says, and the owner agrees, he was correct in his decision. It led to his exile from the NFL for, whatever, 15 years or so. So he's been out of the game, he gets hired on, and they need to find a group of players, and he just immediately has a stack of dossiers of these football misfits to bring in. Has this guy been like a hermit living in exile, just following ex-military football players, people in jail cons? professional soccer, professional football in the UK to know about this kicker. What has Gene Hackman been doing with his free time over the last 15 years that he just knows about all these people waiting in the wings? A, it's a comedy. That's why they did that. Oh, yeah, of course. But a little deeper touch, maybe that's the depth of a very smart coach who doesn't have a job in the pros. Maybe. That he's that thorough, that he thinks that deep, that he thinks that three-dimensionally, that he's way beyond the pale. We mentioned the Rays. How do the Rays succeed? They get players that no one thought could be that good. The A's, the Oakland A's, have been good the same way, where Billy Bean, especially back more like 17 or so years ago, would get people who were just major leaguers and then become big-time players for them. And he's done it again since. Billy Bean has with the A's. The Rays have done it. I'm sure lots of NFL teams have done it. Hockey teams have done it. Basketball teams have probably done it too. Maybe not as much. But maybe that's what's going on, is that he has planned, never think this would happen, but this is what I like to do. This is what I obsess with. And I'm that good at player evaluation. As does his character in Hoosiers. He's somebody who can realize, this is the hand I've been dealt. I don't have Jimmy at first. Again, Jimmy the player in Hoosiers, and he's Jimmy here. I can make these guys be good. Then when we get the superstar, I guess the Shane character in this is the Jimmy character in Hoosiers, we can be an actual winner. So maybe that's the idea, is that he's that prepared, that thorough, and that above everybody else that you give him an opening and he can just exploit everything. He is the Billy Bean, but he's the coach rather than a general manager. And by the way, the owner that hires him is Jack Warden, who is 80. This is his swan song as an actor. He's been in everything in the 50s and 60s and 70s. I don't think he's been in too many sports movies. I believe he's a coach in Heaven Can Wait or a friend or something of Warren Beatty. I haven't seen that movie in a long time. And that's got sports in it, so maybe we'll cover it one day. Heaven Can Wait. Summerall and Madden, of course, are in this. They have a lot of screen time, actually. Pat Summerall, John Madden. Boom, boom, boom. So you got these old guys who really give their movie credibility as well. And, of course, Gene Hackman himself with a pretty major role. So maybe that's it. Gene Hackman's supposed to just be a brilliant coach, given an opportunity, and really exploits it in four weeks, and probably in the playoffs. You mentioned Billy Bean, who's the GM equivalent, I guess, but he's more like the Joe Madden, especially when Joe Madden was with the Tampa Bay Rays, coming up with innovative ways to win. Now Kevin Cash with the Rays. Now Kevin Cash. And if that's the case, the movie that I would really love to see is exactly the same premise as this. This owner reaches out to an old disgraced coach to bring him in because his team needs to win three of the next four and they need to find a group of players to do it. Except he's just not that good. He's like Gene Hackman, except 50% less good at his job. He pulls out the dossiers and he lists all these players and they're all just not very good. 
And it all just falls to a shambles. Oh, well, that didn't work out. Okay, well, see you guys. They don't have the miles and miles and miles and miles and miles and miles and miles of heart that Shane Falco and these other guys do. Doesn't he say that? Miles and miles of heart at one point? Yeah, to the reporter. Miles and miles of heart. He'll have a team full of heart but no capability. There may be a reason that Gene Hackman retired not too long after this film because he was doing Drek like this and Heartbreakers and his last movie was Welcome to Mooseport, Royal Tenenbaums, the year after this movie, which I've now heard since, and Bev and I covered that movie for our podcast a few years ago, but I've heard since that Hackman was a complete asshole to Wes Anderson. But when Gene Hackman wants to be funny, Get Shorty, and I'm forgetting the other one right now, there's a few that he's been funny in before, Young Frankenstein, small role in that. When Gene Hackman is given a funny role, he can hit three-run homers easily. And he's very funny in Royal Tenenbaums, but here in this comedy, he's not bad. Gene Hackman was never bad, but he's just there. He wasn't given much to do. By the way, I didn't talk about Art LaFleur yet. He's Baines in this film. Art LaFleur, we've now covered him four times. He's beaten Costner. Well, he's tied Costner. He's beaten Woody Harrelson. He's ahead of a lot of people. He was in Field of Dreams. He's the first baseman, Chick Gandel. He's in Mr. Baseball. And he was in The Sandlot. He is the babe in the fantasy sequence in The Sandlot. Oh, him. So here's his fourth movie, all supporting roles. It doesn't Costner-level starring roles or Woody Harrelson, but there you go. Four movies for Art LaFleur. And you mentioned John Favreau, of course, in Rudy. He's way over the top in this, being a SWAT guy. He's such a mogul for Disney now. Who knew he'd end up being such an important player anywhere, but especially for Disney. But his role in this isn't funny. I can see why they think it's funny, but it's a more important role than I would have thought. He's one of the many actors in this in a smaller role who's either gone on to be big or to do better things. The cast is potential. It's just a pretty okay screenplay at best. Deutsch directing, McEwen screenplay. Just, yeah, that happened. When I saw Favreau pop up early in the movie, I kind of expected a little bit more of his character. But for the most part, he's a one-note guy. He's introduced as former military, now SWAT, former football player. But he has anger control issues and all that. But he doesn't come across in this movie as a guy with anger problems. He comes across as a guy with some sort of mental impairment or something or too many concussions because it's more like, no, don't hit red jersey. Don't hit red jersey. Remember what I told you? Hit red jersey. Hit red jersey. And then the, okay, monosyllabic one-note guy. Rather than saying, whoa, Kano should be saying, no. No. (laughs) He's got to not hit me. That's all. No. Keanu's got a damn good spiral on him for sure and there's some interesting fun goofy plays in this movie I didn't really like the fact that at one point Gene Hackman actively wants his players to cheat to win the game because what are they going to do throw you in football jail like well that's not really the point if you've got heart presumably you're not cheating to win one thing I did really enjoy was John Madden he's illustrating the bobble play boom boom what happened here is he dropped the ball, and then he went and he picked up the ball, and then he dropped it again. Boom. Boom. Apparently, he was coaching the Raiders in the late 70s when that exact play actually happened. Oh, okay. So they had him narrate the sequence of events that led to a touchdown to let the Washington team score. Good for you, John Madden, having a little bit of humility about all this kind of stuff. The guy has taken a lot of flack over the years because he's a bit of a goofball. But I kind of enjoyed John Madden. I don't know why. It never hurts if the person in a job like this, as cartoonish as he might be, 
knows what he's talking about. And John Madden knows football. He's not as smooth as some of the color guys who followed. I don't really follow football as we've talked about lots of times in our podcast. By the way, this is the ninth football movie we've covered. That's as many as basketball and as many as baseball. They all have nine movies we've covered. Dead Heat. Wow. But John Madden is certainly synonymous with football. And I have no problem with the guy because I don't think he's racist or the other things. Don Cherry for hockey would be his equivalent, I guess, here in Canada. They both have credibility because they've been coaches in their sport and succeeded, especially Madden. This movie likes football. I think the portrayal is pretty solid. It's not outstanding, but it's okay. This isn't that funny. And it's too long. Recurring themes in our podcast. You gave it, I think you said a 6 out of 10, right? Yeah. I was actually going to go maybe slightly lower, either 5, 5.5, just because what you said, it's too long. It's not that funny. And as much as I enjoyed moments in it and some of the actors in it, at the end of it, I didn't really care about anything. Mm-hmm. Scorability factor, romance scenes in this movie. That scene where Keanu does visit the lead Brooke, Brooke, Langton. Brooke Langdon's character in her bar after her shift is over. She's cleaning up the bar. There's glasses everywhere. He's awkwardly trying to make conversation, make a move or what have you. Two things stood out to me that I really enjoyed in that scene. One was the fact that Keanu's character, without a word, walks up to the bar, grabs somebody's 90% empty, presumably warm, flat beer, and just drinks the rest of it and then puts the glass down. (laughs) And then later he's making the leave and then comes back and makes his move. And there's the voiceover of John Madden saying, Falco's going to make a move. The defense has shut him down before. That was cute. I don't know if I've ever seen that before. That was a fun little moment for all that I ragged on the romance in this. That's Howard Deutsch with his rom-com background coming through because maybe he was miscast as the director doing a sports movie. He was better cast as a romance director. Well, we're at the end of November now with this podcast. When we get into December, two weeks later, we're going to tackle a topic that seems like it'll be a one-off. Rock climbing in the Oscar-winning documentary Free Solo. Which I think you've seen, right? Yep. And I have too, but it was on an iPad and a plane. Now I get to watch it on a 42-inch TV, which still isn't as good as it should be on a big screen in a movie theater, but it'll be much better seeing it that way on Disney+. Plus. I want to know what your can-you-score-it-this-movie factor is going to be for free solo, right? <laughs> Panic fucking. <laughs> I'm going to die! I better fuck while I can. <laughs> Just humping that midair while you're falling to your doom, is that it? Probably not a scorable movie, although I think his girlfriend's pretty cute but certainly a reputable film, more so than this one. Okay, well, I am at MovieFiend51. He is at Scoring at Movies. You can find this podcast wherever you get podcasts, because I think that's how you got this one in the first place. Scoring at the Movies, number 65. We've been doing this for a long time, two and a half years, and we're coming up at the end of this year. 2021 is not far away, Chris. Ooh. Thank you. That's probably for the best, yeah. And as you could probably tell, fans, we're back on Zoom today because... Restrictions are hitting all over again, probably in North America, but certainly here in Toronto, Canada. Oh, God, the damn virus does not end. Anyway, that's the end of this podcast. Replacements, the scab movie. Take your easy scabs. Fuck you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Ends on a My nutshell comes back at the end. Note. The rare nutshell reprisal. Fuck you, scabs. I don't mean that. I just think it's funny. <laughs>